0: Internet, I regret to inform you that you will never be rid of me. Hi! Hello, it's me, Holly Anderson. I am the director of politics here at MTV News and I am your long-absent host of The Stakes. Our new studio in Hollywood is still in the, this should have walls, right, stage of construction, and I had to come all the way out to New York City to be reunited with you, my listeners. But it was worth it to learn what a Nor'easter is, why you shouldn't fly in one, and to bring you this week's episode. Let's dance, y'all. First up, last Saturday, millions of women participated in protest marches all over the world, accompanied by supportive men, cute children, photogenic pets, and some truly awe-inspiring sign work. And while all that was going on, we ventured upstate to a small town with a long history in the fight for women's rights. There was a lot to celebrate in these marches, but while the scope of the protest was impressive, there were and are many women in this country who felt skeptical about the messaging of this march.
1: Are these pussy hats uh, exclusionary of trans women? Like, if you align to genitals with gender, like, what are you doing, really, for the most part?
0: Then, a historic Los Angeles DIY venue fights to stay open with gentrification knocking on its door.
2: Yeah, because I can imagine if that didn't exist, I don't know, we probably would have been doing more drugs and... We would have, like, been really bored.
0: (laughs) Finally, we remember American actress and icon Mary Tyler Moore with an essay from MTV style writer Gabby Noon. But first... MTV News reporter Jamie Fuller and producer Kasha Mihailovich were seeing purple and gold by the end of their day at the Women's March in Seneca Falls, New York, the birthplace of the American suffrage movement.
3: Nine years ago, on this spot, 300 women and men began a movement for women's rights.
4: Seneca Falls, New York is the town where the women's rights movement started. The Main Street is lined with stores and museums about women and women's suffrage, the movement to get women the right to vote. The Saturday of the Women's March, thousands walked from the Women's Rights National Historic Park to the First Presbyterian Church, five blocks away. But the day before that, Donald Trump officially became the president, and Melina Carnicelli was at the park preparing for the rally.
5: You know how they say, well, when it's your idea, you better do it. (laughs) Um, So that is how it started. I had plans uh, to be in D.C. in a hotel reservation. Um, And the morning after I made that uh, plan, I woke up with the idea that there would be a lot of local folk who wouldn't be able to go to D.C. or New York City. Or maybe not want to do that, but would want to participate in an effort. So I thought, gee, we should really have something local. And my first thought was, Seneca Falls, of course, there's not a better place in America than to, uh, to host this type of event, and I consider this sacred ground in this area. So I, I called um, a friend of mine who lives in Seneca Falls, and I ran the idea by her, and her first and only word at that point was, sure. <laughs> so from that point on, it, it grew and grew and grew to where we are today. And uh, what's your day job? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm retired. (laughs) Actually, I'm I'm retired professionally uh, as an educator for many years. And I also, I was the uh, mayor of Auburn, New York. Another
4: organizer of the march is Betty Bayer. I'm a professor of women's studies at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. I asked her about the beginning of the women's suffrage movement and how we judge those suffragettes today because it's complicated. At the heart of it, it was a group of uh, women who were well, more well-off than most women, had found spouses who were willing to let them uh, right. organize, and uh, Frederick Douglass was the only person of color there. Uh, right. And that legacy is important in remembering that moment, but you also have to build on it because... That's right. And And that's why
3: we see this as then the opening to our march tomorrow and throughout the day. I mean, one of the things that we realize is that the women's movement happened because of abolition. It happened because of the Iroquois women. Mm -hmm. So we have an um, opening that includes First Nation Uh, We are mindful of that, and we are mindful that it wasn't just three white women who were considered of a certain class. But there's another thing to bear in mind with all of that. They didn't have access to things, all right? And so I think that's another thing, you know, you can say, okay, you know, you have this middle class, they had husbands, and so on. But they didn't have a vote, they didn't have a voice, and the 1848 Declaration of Sentiments is not simply about suffrage. Just quickly.
4: The Declaration of Sentiments was the document that came out of the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848, and it kickstarted the women's suffrage movement. It was signed by famous suffragettes like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott, as well as the abolitionist Frederick Douglass, the only African American supporter to attend the convention. That kind of foreshadows how some suffragettes went on to use racist arguments to try to get women the vote, instead of African Americans
3: it lists at least 13 or more institutions um, that they thought needed to be overhauled education, government, law, the courts, religion it was a vision for how to rebuild and revamp so it's more than just a few women hoping to get a vote it really was a visionary document
6: I always tell the staff that they, they must connect history to the present. So uh, lots of conversations in the last uh, year about Black Lives Matter, and they cannot take a position on that. But what they can say is the true story. What What are the numbers of people that are um, being shot, what are the numbers of police officers, what is the Department of Justice doing? But yeah, we are talking about how changes in present day connect to stories of injustice and inequality. We've, we get a lot of connections. I almost wish we didn't have as many connections as we do to the present day, honestly. Amy Gazala is the boss at the park. I am the superintendent of women's rights National Historical Park. We have our own lingo here and so superintendent is sort of the director. On a side note, Amy really loves her job. I um, was actually uh, an educator and I uh, took my class to visit the statue um, in Ellis Island and my students were predominantly students of color and I felt that they should have been inspired and really moved by this story as I was. And they were not. And I thought to myself, you know, that's what I want to become as a ranger and really tell stories that um, engage different audiences. And that's what we do. The coolest job, it is the coolest job, it really is. The Women's Rights Historical Park is not really a park park two-thirds of national parks are not natural resources, they're cultural resources. So of course, you know, we take care of the Statue of Liberty, the Trail of Tears is of course a protected area, Martin Luther King's home, and the big, you know, the White House is President's Park.
4: The Women's Rights Historical Park is in fact a museum and a lawn beside the Wesleyan Chapel where the Women's Suffrage Convention happened and the Declaration of Sentiments was signed. It would be 72 years until women got the right to vote, on paper. In reality, many African-American women were barred from voting until the Civil Rights Act of 1965. And even though American Indian women were the model for suffrage, they were left out of the 19th Amendment, too.
6: We talk about it all, you know. um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton made... uh, choices that were not always the best choices when it came to people of color. One of the things that I have tried to do here as a superintendent, as a woman of color, I am of Latino descent, is to tell all of the stories. And that's why I mean that we can't just talk about women's rights. We have to talk about the rights of all. We have to talk about LGBTQ rights. We must talk about the rights of people of color. And that is the one subject that is brought up often by young people of color that come to visit the park. They often say, well, what the heck does it have? Does this story have to do with me? And that's what we try to show them, that when we talk about equality, what does equality mean to them? Often, they will bring up a lot of the issues that are in the newspapers today in terms of inequality.
4: Gazala told us that in the last year, attendance at the Women's Rights Historical Park has tripled to
6: 150,000 a year.
4: And she was ready for the deluge of marchers tomorrow.
6: The organizer was talking about 200 people showing. And I said to her, I don't think, I think you're kind of underestimating that. Um, So since then, we've been hearing 1,000, 2,000, 3,000. I think we're up to 6,000 right now, last I heard. The next day was so unseasonably warm and sunny,
4: everyone had to mention it.
3: Good morning!
4: (laughs) Amy was right, and the town's main street is clogged by 10 a.m., as are the park's museum and lawn. Amy herself is in her green and brown park uniform, grinning as she welcomes people to the museum. Crowds of women in pink pussy hats, actually a lot of men and kids too, have spilled onto the street and then across the street. After playing some Nina Simone to hype up the crowd and opening speeches from organizers, the rally was officially convened by Diane Shenandoah, the Oneida Nation's faith keeper of the Wolf Clan. <S dilemma> Sally Roche Wagner is a Syracuse University professor of women's history.
7: Welcome to Making History. This moment is unprecedented. The Fox, as we know, are now in charge of the chicken coop. But we have come too far on the road of freedom to turn back. We have been about the business of creating liberty and justice for all in this country since a handful of rich white founding fathers learned democracy from the Haudenosaunee, but applied it only to themselves. Millions of people here have, today, have slowly pushed open the door of freedom, bringing in more and more of us. The suffragists who, like the founding fathers, were students of their Haudenosaunee neighbors and saw what women's rights looked like in action. Abolitionists like Frederick Douglass, who supported women's rights along with his own, knowing that all freedoms hang together. Don't kid ourselves, we're in for some tough times. The fox are poised to clean out the chicken coop, eating up all of our hard-won freedoms. But we can be sure of one thing, as Matilda Jocelyn Gage said in her first woman's rights speech in 1852, fear not any attempt to frown down the revolution already commenced. Nothing is a more fertile aid of reform than any attempt to check it. Two things we got to remember about a revolution. One is that we're going to get our asses kicked And the other is that we're going
8: to win. Greetings to you today on behalf of the Mohawk Nation and the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. This is beautiful.
4: Louise McDonald-Hearn is the Bear Clan mother of the Mohawk Nation.
8: It's not about history it's about her story and in her story she's gonna say you've all been lied to because it didn't begin here this land that you're standing on belonged to the Seneca people more importantly the Seneca women and when our peacemaker brought our message of peace, good mind, strength, and love. It wasn't a man that understood that message. The first receiver of that message of peace was a woman, and her name was Jigusaze, and she was from the Seneca Nation. And it was through her wit and her brilliance that she lobbied for women's position inside our Confederacy we had the right to choose our leadership. And men became leaders only through the uterine voice that said it to be so. Imagine if that was in your constitution. So in light of this, her story, and prior to the precedence, that is founded in the primordial laws of an indigenous world this is a day to choose a new destiny and to choose for ourselves who we're going to become after this day and so as my grandmother stood on the shores and welcomed our european sisters as i sit next to this sexy rock star sally rosh wagner <laughs> we come back together in sisterhood. Matilda Jocelyn Gage was given a Mohawk name called Galunyahawi. And it was through that sisterhood and that friendship that the women's movement began here. But they didn't think of it on their own. And for some reason my grandmothers didn't even have a whisper in her story. But today I stand here resurrect them. We're not gone, we're not dead, we're not an old myth or an old story. We are goddamn alive.
9: My father is a little bit hard of hearing and he had the inauguration blasting throughout the whole house. So I was getting really mad, and then I went to Walmart, and I was like, I'm gonna make some posters. And so we like immediately stocked up and um, started kind of listening to like feminist music and empowering ourselves while we made our posters. So
4: then yeah. we brought an extra one too, and we gave it away to somebody because we just wanted to make you know a whole bunch. And <laughs> there were so many to choose from that it was like, I don't know, it's hard to decide. Hi there.
2: Do you want to read your sign for MTV News? Sure. it's The future is female. Thank you. If your man ain't here, dump him. (laughs) Love trumps hate, no mandate. Freedom of speech does not equal license to harm, spread love, be kind.
10: We are all equal. My sign says intersectional as fuck.
2: Slay the patriarchy.
11: Love more. Then it says a couple things on it, smash fascism is important, black lives matter of course, stop white supremacy and never trump.
3: My own says our bodies, our minds, our power.
11: Just. Grab newspapers, not women. I've had enough. Enough is enough is enough is enough is
7: enough.
0: (laughs) Susan, be nasty. Every human
4: matters. Veteran, lesbian, Latinx, woman, I will
7: stand, I will fight. This says, vaginaed states of America. It says, now you've pissed off grandma. (laughs) Mine
2: says, we the people protect each other.
10: Mine says, we the people defend dignity.
2: And you guys are all here as a family. Do you have a sign?
10: <gasps>
2: what does your
7: sign say?
11: Be kind.
7: Um, Mama Bear? Yep. Yeah, and your name? Sally Rush Wagner.
4: Our producer, Kasia, caught up with two speakers as the march wrapped up.
12: Why did you think the emphasis you chose to tell people um, at the march was the most important for you?
8: Um, I think the truth um, and the unveiling of a history that's never been told.
12: But you came here a- anyway, despite the kind of um, cutting out of Native women from that history. Why is it important for you to come here despite that?
8: I think what, it, <clears throat> what makes it important is that I not um, become like them. And um, I don't think it was just rich white women. I think you can speak to that. I think it was hard-working uh, women who had no, no voice, um, who had no representation. And Sally can speak to that.
7: Yeah, I think absolutely. Was there racism in the in the movement in the 19th century and in the 20th century? Absolutely. Um, you know, we, we start from the place that we begin. And we begin in this country from a place of racism. But was there a struggle to overcome that? Absolutely. I've been involved in the women's movement since 1969 and gone through tremendous changes. Quite honestly, I find the story of the boat pretty boring. It's, you know, it's like it's done. But what we don't know is Matilda Jocelyn Gage said, for a woman to birth an unwanted child is a crime against the mother and a sin against the soul of the child. They called for equal pay for equal work. She talked about sex trafficking. We got that history lost. And why? Because it is not in the interests of the powers that be that we know that history, because then we would know that we're carrying on a struggle that was begun. It's much more convenient to say it was a rich white woman's movement for the vote only. So part of what I think we can do in this next few years is to correct the way in which history has been taught and to tell truth in history, as Louise said. So we are in solidarity on that.
8: Absolutely, and, and we moment. welcome all our sisters of color, you know, to, to join the movement.
4: What were people marching for? Leaders stressed that it's a march for women that wasn't partisan in any way. But of course, there were a lot of anti-Trump signs, and the speakers touted a lot of progressive ideas. Many marchers we talked to said it was about unity or women's rights generally, and some saw this march as a direct reaction to President Trump's election, like this professor from SUNY Oswego.
12: Yes, uh, my name is Dr. Roberto Ortado, and my sign says, Soy una mujer fenomenalmente, mujer fenomenal, ese soy yo. And that means um, I'm a woman phenomenally, phenomenal woman, that's me, by Maya Angelou. We wanted to participate in sharing our voices about our... Um, need for change in the current political climate. Um, for the Latina community, Trump winning wasn't a shock or a surprise because we were aware beforehand that racism in the United States was rampant, even if it didn't name itself as such. Um, in my neighborhood, for instance, people who before the election hadn't had their Trump posters out suddenly had them out people shouting at myself and my husband to go back where we came from, following us, uh, being followed and pulled over by police, um, being pulled over multiple times in a day. Um, That's not even the worst of it, but I mean, these are things that we experienced beforehand and have ramped up since the election.
4: When we caught up with the march's co-organizer, Betty Bayer later in the
3: day, she was ecstatic, like almost every single marcher we saw. Most of the people I talked to felt heartened. Um, People said that they've been feeling down, they haven't really known what to do, how to express themselves. And I saw older women wheeling along, in walk, you know, using walkers, different things, Um, you know, handicapped people coming. I mean, it was just amazing.
4: What's next? A feel-good march or parade or protest, whatever you want to call it, it's necessary sometimes. But to change politics, the votes are what matters. This crowd was overwhelmingly white women who voted for Trump by a majority nationally. And no one was parading down the main street during Trump's inauguration on Friday in Seneca Falls, but he carried the county anyway. With executive orders flying out of the president's office seemingly by the hour, it's hard to know what's gonna happen day to day. Amy Gazala had this to say when we asked her the day before the march what she thought her biggest job was as a government employee and superintendent of the Women's Rights National Historic Park.
6: The biggest thing that is being shown tomorrow is that people on, as I said before, that people can be, Americans can be on federal land, land that is protected by the federal government and people may disagree with the federal government. What an incredible, exercise, in democracy that is.
0: That was MTV's Jamie Fuller and Kasia Mihailovic reporting from Seneca Falls, New York. A day after the inauguration of Donald Trump, over three million people in the U.S. participated in more than 500 women's marches. And amid the chants of sisterhood and pink hats were several groups wondering whether they were truly welcome. Feminism you see has a long history of unwelcoming behavior to those outside of the cis-white intersection. I mean, feminist hero Susan B. Anthony said this herself in 1866. I'm quoting here, I will cut off this right arm of mine before I will ever work or demand the ballot for the Negro and not the woman. Okay. While many at the marches expressed their desire for intersectionality and allyship, across the country at the protests themselves and on social media, there were running threads of a different perspective, calling bullshit to what bitch media co-founder, Andy Zeisler refers to as marketplace feminism. For our next story, producer James T. Green chatted with a friend of his with a critical perspective of the marches, their non-inclusion of trans rights, and what cis white women can do to become better feminists.
1: My name is Robin Canner. My preferred pronouns are she and her. I am a designer and co-founder of a startup called My Trans Health, which is designed to help trans people get access to quality health care. So, my trans health is a resource that's kind of like a guided search to help trans people get access to healthcare. We found like through our experiences that sometimes we'd go to a doctor and like they wouldn't know what questions to ask us or like we'd be kind of gatekeepery about what like types of hormones they were going to give us or whatever. And we kind of just wanted to alleviate that whole process. So, what we ended up doing is we called um, a little over 500 different providers and um, organizations across six cities and launch with like a guided search. So you just enter in like, I identify as like a trans woman, I live in New York City and I need access to hormones. Um, and so we shipped that last May of 2016 and coming up in April, we're gonna be in 20 cities um, with, a, with a like more refined design too. generally speaking, people who are doing those marches don't want to do anything negative to trans people, really, at all. Um, But that doesn't mean that that byproduct doesn't happen in general. So, I feel like a lot of the marches that I saw were really, like, fantastic and totally supportive, but, like, on the back channels of Twitter, I definitely noticed, like, a lot of conversation from people being, like, you know, are these pussy hats uh, exclusionary of trans women? Like, if you align to genitals with gender, like, what are you doing really for the most part? But what I do think is that it creates a brand that's mostly defined by like cis women who are feminists um, and it really speaks to them because they have ownership over their uteruses and vaginas, which I totally, totally get and totally support and totally want them to feel that. What kind of happens when it comes to that also is though, trans women are going to feel like weird about it and maybe it's not exclusionary but i think to some extent um it's giving us dysphoria not all the time but for some of the time i want to avoid making like a sweeping generalization of all trans women feel weird about this thing i think marginalized women and marginalized people in general started to really own this idea of intersectional feminism where it's not really just about like cis white women doing the thing but it's really all inclusive to like any type of woman any type of like woman of race like all these different pieces with it when that piece got co-opted into a thing uh i started to see a bunch of weird things these versions of like feminist apparel and like hashtags on instagram of just like really cis white women talking about their their feminism as like this like total idea of a brand that they um that they own or they co-opted and like you don't own that like you didn't You't come up with that, you didn't think that through. you don't have the the language or the experience to really understand how that works. Um, and i I think it just comes down to the fact that like there are there are a lot of like intersectional feminists that have been doing this work for a really long time um, and they have like a breadth of understanding when it comes to like even like the small pedantic things that you might not pick up. Um, so I think what's happening is when like cis white women turn intersectional feminism into a brand. In part they're doing a good thing because they're bringing awareness to it but in part they're doing a lot of negative things because they just can't see what everyone else can see and if they're owning that platform and not elevating voices they start to miss a lot of things um, and i think that is problematic This white feminism means lazy totally half-assed attempts at trying to understand something and that's probably the the biggest problem within it entirely. The people in this world are so much deeper than just cis white people. It's difficult for cis white feminism to own so much about diversity when they don't understand so much about diversity. And I think like the reality is is like cis white women really need to address this head on. Like kind of like working their way around it in like this really soft way is is troublesome, because I just think that, like, it's a thing that actually needs to be discussed. It, you know, it involves difficult conversations with your family members. It involves difficult conversations with your friends. It involves calling something out when you see it, even if it's awkward to do so. This is why women really just need to, like, take a long look at themselves and, like, understand that, like, it's them who kind of, like didn't make this happen, but really attributed to like a large part of our problem with Donald Trump running this country. And I'm not sure cis white women like in the past have had to have those conversations. But now with this idea of intersectional feminism, they really need to kind of step up their game um, to have those moments of just like, okay, like, hi mom, hi grandma, like I know that you grew up in a very conservative area of like Tennessee or Alabama or you know, even Minnesota, but like we got to start having these conversations because, you know, in 2018, we're going to have a midterm and we got to make some serious decisions about that midterm. And it could be making compromises that like they're not used to making. So having those conversations is really important, in my opinion.
0: You just heard from Robin Kanner, designer and co-founder of MyTransHealth. You can learn more at MyTransHealth.com. This piece was produced by James T. Green, with production assistance by Marissa Cantor, and music by Trillion Cats. That's Cats with a Z because we love you, Internet. We'll be right back after this break. Rhinoceropolis in Denver, the Bell Foundry in Baltimore, and Dark Matter in Nashville are all DIY music venues, all shut down last month. In a country that continues to push marginalized folks into the corners, safe spaces are becoming more important, more necessary than ever. This week, producer Mukta Mohan takes us to a legendary venue in Los Angeles called The Smell to find out why it's so important to musicians and fans and what they're doing to keep it open.
9: The Smell is an all-ages music venue where artistic creativity and a supportive community thrive. On any given night in this brick building near LA's Skid Row, you might catch a queer punk band, a noise set, a comedy show, a guy in tidy whities and a baseball helmet doing what sounds like karaoke, or even a rock and roll staple like Ty Siegel playing a sold-out show to a bunch of sweaty teenagers. But in May of last year, the owner of The Smell, Jim Smith, received a demolition notice. The Smell and the rest of the businesses on the block would be replaced with a parking lot. But The Smell isn't going down that easily. Just a few weeks ago, six bands that all got their start at The Smell, before becoming established national acts, played a benefit show to raise funds for a new space. Hundreds of people turned up to show their support. I talked to members of Bleached, Health, and No Age, all of whom played The Benefit, as well as members of The Smell's community of artists, performers, and music lovers.
13: My name is Jim Smith. I'm uh, the owner and manager of The Smell. My name is Sean Solomon. I play
11: in a band called Moaning.
2: Hi, this is Jennifer and Jesse, and we play in Bleached, and we also played in a band, Mika Miko. My name is John Familletti. uh I play in health. Hi, this is Randy Randall from No
13: Age. I'm Vice Schooler. I am an uh, artist and video director.
9: If you're wondering about that name...
11: Well, it smells. The name is accurate. It's in a part of downtown L.A. where you have to enter through a back alley. And that back alley is usually kind of urine, you know, feces, you know, wafting sort of B.O. smell from, from different people that have... Uh, inhabited the the alley that day.
9: So it's a warm night and you finally find the door in the middle of a dank alley. Here's John from Health along with Jeff Freeberg and Sean Solomon describing what it's like to walk into the smell.
2: It's fucking weird. It's like a long, extremely dark hallway. It's, It's narrow, but it's very, very long. There's a lot of space and there's two rooms, one in the front and one in the back.
11: It's all concrete and brick. One of the bricks is missing, and it looks over into the uh, New Jalisco Bar, which is a beautiful, like, drag gay bar. And uh, you can catch a glimpse of some shows every once in a while, which is cool, yeah. Uh, The first time I went to The Smell, it looked like a clubhouse uh, that I had always dreamed of when I was, like, 13. It's got murals everywhere, zines. It's kind of, like grungy and dirty, but in the best way possible. And the bathroom is a sight to see for sure. There's like tons of graffiti. But that, those are all the things that I think have made it really fun and really kind of, a, it's like almost like a litmus test. Like people that go there are really there f- for the music, not because it looks cool, not because it smells good, not because it sounds good. They're there to, to take part in something that I think has more to do with energy and expression than um, any kind of posturing or scene points
9: That's Randy Randall from the band, No Age. The Smell and No Age are pretty synonymous at this point. For their 2007 album, Weirdo Rippers, Randy got a friend to paint the band's name on the front of the venue and shot the album cover there. Afterwards, rather than painting it back to white, they left it, and it was there for years. Now, there's a new mural over the Smell's front entrance, painted by local artist and musician Sean Solomon. Here's Sean.
11: Jim Smith, who owns The Smell, asked me to paint a mural. And after Trump was elected president, I called Jim and I was like, I think I know what I want to paint. And so we painted an anti-Trump mural. It says, not our president. And it's sort of like a, the style is sort of a tribute to Keith Haring. There's like um, some like squiggles and like the rainbow colors. And there's some cartoons of different protesters underneath.
9: Sean's been thinking a lot lately about what the Trump presidency means for DIY venues.
11: Places like The Smell, especially in this uh, political climate, I don't know how else to say it, but are so important. In fact, they become almost revolutionary or something. They become, just playing a show for a young kid at The Smell becomes a political act. DIY music venues are so important because they help groups of people that normally don't get a chance to speak It gives them a venue to speak their minds and it's a place for communities and like-minded people to gather and share ideas and without them, you know, LGBT, trans, any different race, like, you know, you really need these kinds of places to gather and speak your mind, especially in the arts and, you know, in a world where, you know, Trump is president, we need Places where liberal people still have the chance to speak their mind.
9: Here's Jim Smith, the owner of the Smell.
13: DIY venues are different in that it's more community-based. In our case, you know, it's all volunteer-run. The artists do a lot of the booking. The people, the kids that come here, do a lot of the, the booking as well. Also, I think in our case, because we're, um, you know, we we keep it non, you know, like no alcohol. I think that puts more the focus on the music. And so if, if they come here, it's because they want to see the bands and be like part of the, that community. And, and so the focus is more on the, the music and the art, which I th- think is like where it should be. It's a place that there's a big uh, community of people around. And I think that has a lot to do with it being not a bar. People don't go there to drink and people don't go there to like get fucked up. And I appreciate that because I I feel like Bands and music really have helped so many people I know heal through hard times and good times. And I think it's really important to have a a space that exists that's completely centered around people being creative in a non-judgmental environment, which I think is especially important for younger kids.
9: That's Vice Cooler. He's a local musician, video director and artist who got his start at The Smell and continues to attend shows and volunteer. The Smell is currently looking for a new location and are actively fundraising so that they can purchase a property and bring it up to code.
13: It's hard to say what the next location is gonna be like, how it's gonna feel, or what it's gonna look like, or hopefully we find a space that just is like jumps out at us like, wow, this is it, like this is our next home.
9: I asked Jim how it feels to watch DIY venues in other cities be pushed out by gentrification or shuttered by the authorities.
13: It is kind of disheartening to see um, you know other venues kind of going through the same thing that we are um, and it, it seems like it's all happening around the same time and then obviously with uh, the ghost ship fire in Oakland you know a lot of DIY warehouses that, that did shows and you know where people were living you know they've kind of been under threat so it's 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 been really tough to see that but uh, you know I think the community here and, and I'm sure it's the same in, in New York and, and other places. Uh, Oakland you know they're determined to kind of keep the spirit going and try to uh, you know open reopen those venues or open other venues. hopefully um, you know they'll just we'll, the community will rally and, and we'll just keep keep it alive.
9: Jennifer and Jesse Clavin have been playing at The Smell since they were teenagers in a punk band called Mika Miko. Now they play in the band Bleached.
2: I feel like with Trump's presidency, I mean, there's gonna be a need for like DIY spaces. I don't think it's gonna be as acceptable to be like a freak or an artist. It's like a safe place to rebel. You can go to a DIY space and do what you your your art there, like your your an art show with your graffiti in there, your, your band that's making political statements in that space. Yeah, because I can imagine if that didn't exist, like even for us, I don't know, we probably would have been doing more drugs and we would have like been really bored. <laughs> the smell is so important and so special and has like, I feel like helped paved a lot of kids' like, lives with allowing them to, like, express themselves and everyone's super accepting of each other and their art. And I feel like it's really important that L.A. has a space like that. So, I was sad, but I also felt like there's no way the smell could close. Like, I think there's too many people that love it. And now, of course, that's what's happening is everyone's here to support and benefit a new smell. For
9: MTV, I'm Mukta Mohan.
0: This week, legendary actress Mary Tyler Moore passed away at 80 years old. To commemorate her inimitable grace and flair, MTV style writer Gabby Noon wrote this personal essay.
10: Last summer, I moved into my first apartment with three roommates. I was working a temp blogging job where the pay was low and it was unclear if my co-workers knew I existed. Being an independent woman was thrilling for about a minute, but mostly it was lackluster. I spent the summer sitting in my bare cubicle eating hard-boiled eggs so I could pay my rent and buy a dress from the ASOS clearance section. In the mornings, I would apply my makeup and dry my hair while watching the first season of The Mary Tyler Moore Show. I used to watch the Mary Tyler Moore show on syndication. I truly think the most beneficial form of television for children is being forced to watch whatever reruns from decades past are airing on cable. As a kid, I thought Mary Richard's life was much more glamorous than it truly was. The concept of being an adult with a job in an apartment struck me as an incredible accomplishment that I wanted so badly for my future. I thought watching it again would boost my morale. I, too, could feel like an elegant lady throwing my hat in the air confident that I would make it after all. As Mary Richards, a single 30-something news producer and birth control pill taker, Mary Tyler Moore embodied my ideal style, practical glam. No matter the harsh fluorescent lighting of the newsroom, no matter that she was more likely to spend her time after work, say, sneaking into a club for recently divorced people to take advantage of its discount travel deals rather than attending a classy party, no matter what, she was always dressed like a woman with sophisticated places to be. She was never afraid to crack a joke, never reduced to a mere straight woman, and she always, always did it with grace. In the first episode, her grumpy boss Lou Grant asks if she wants a drink during her interview, and she boldly or cluelessly replies she'll have a Brandy Alexander. He definitely, obviously, has nothing more to offer than a bottle of whiskey. This feels like a metaphor for her entire style and her work ethic. No matter how crappy the bar, I want to enter looking like I deserve an elegant upscale cocktail. No matter how ugly the office, I'd want my style to reflect the same cheerful, or clueless, optimism. In the early seasons of the show, the costume designer had an exclusive contract with Evan Picone. Once an accessible and quality department store brand, Evan Picone is still around, although they mostly produce polyester separates for JCPenney. They wanted to advertise to a new generation of young working women. The costume designer wanted to pick out a variety of pieces and then tailor them to Moore's body like couture. This resulted in a variety of turtlenecks, A-line skirts, fitted coats, and knit dresses that Mary Richards would mix and match with things like low-slung belts and scarves like a real working wardrobe for a real working woman. Throughout the show, her garments make more repeat appearances than any of the men that she dates, proving that as love interests fade, a quality turtleneck remains the same. When I was buying work clothes last summer, which is really an impossible task when you're both broke and too hot to wear anything other than a tube top, I bought two mock turtleneck sleeveless bodysuits in black and white in an attempt to remain some semblance of tribute to Mary Richards. I probably could have worn something else with neck exposure and spared myself the extra sweat, but I was committed to the look. Today, in my current job, I feel much more put together. Sometimes I want to experiment with trends, but no matter how many crop tops or chokers I incorporate into my life, I just want to look like Mary Tyler Moore. My future feels increasingly uncertain. I'm not sure what job title I'll have in five years or what my life will look like. Instead, I think of Mary Richards in her chic and easy separates, and I hope that wherever I end up, I'll be wearing office-appropriate go-go boots.
0: That was Gabby Noon reading her essay, Everything I Know About Style, I Learned from Mary Tyler Moore. You can find it and more of Gabby's work on mtvnews.com. I'm Holly Anderson, those were The Stakes, and did you know you can have this show personally delivered to you every time we release a new episode? Search The Stakes wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and tap subscribe. Boom, day made. While you're there, take a minute and leave us a review and a star rating. Five is good if you were wondering. Also, tell your special life people about us. Send us a tweet or a snap or a gram of you listening at MTV Podcasts wherever. Every little bit helps. And if you're curious about what else we make here in Radioland, there's a full list of shows at podcasts.mtv.com. And if I can throw in a personal unpaid endorsement here, and I can because this is my time, while you're there, you should check out a show I like almost as much as this one. Really, it's close. It's called Lady Problems and features MTV writers Rachel Handler, Hazel Sills, and Teo Bugbee, along with a rotating cast of guests, discussing how pop culture treats women like shapely piles of garbage. It will not surprise you to learn that they have no shortage of material to inspire them. Find Lady Problems wherever you download your finest podcasts. The Stakes is produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, James T. Green, and Kasha Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network. Thanks to everyone that submitted and reported stories this week. Get out there, take action, take care of yourselves and each other. Thanks for listening.